So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Jenny Law. Jenny's one of our uh, hematologists, oncologists here at uh, university. Uh, to give you some background, she did her undergrad at Rice in, in Houston, um, did medical school here, went back to uh, Texas to do her hemonc training at UT Southwestern after doing a year as an uh, oncology hospitalist here. And uh, we are lucky enough to get her back to Baltimore, and um, today she'll be talking on the topic of HLH. If you don't know, didn't know about it before, you'll know about you it after this. Really <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Great, thank you. Thanks for that introduction. I'm so happy to be here to talk about hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, certainly a critical care conundrum and a topic where both hematology and critical care are very much involved. So I actually started back as faculty September 2015, and I thought it might be nice to review the HLH cases that we've had since then. So from 2015 to current day, I think we had five HLH cases, of which four of whom we'll just kind of briefly review to kind of underscore how sick these patients are when they first present and their varied clinical presentations. So the first patient's a 50-year-old woman. She had a prior history of HLH diagnosed in November 2014 and had actually gotten therapy previously. She was transferred from another hospital with pancytopenia and septic shock. She got IVIG at our institution and went on to get a salvage regimen with ATG and solumedrol. Her ferritin peaked at over 50,000. She had multiple hospital complications, including PEA arrest, VRE septic shock, and ultimately died. This past summer, many of you may have been involved in caring for a 36-year-old man who had a history of alcohol abuse, transferred from another institution with pancytopenia and acute liver failure. He was found to have disseminated histoplasmosis. He got three doses of atopicide and high-dose steroids. His ferritin peaked at over 50,000. He had a very prolonged hospital course, including multi-system organ failure, refractory GI bleed, and ultimately died. Earlier this year, we had a 40-year-old man who had a history of HIV that was well-controlled on heart, as well as refractory Hodgkin lymphoma. He was being treated as an outpatient with chemotherapy when he was transferred with acute liver failure, fevers, and pancytopenia. He actually did not meet the strict HLH 2004 criteria, but was found to have an elevated H score, so we started him on therapy. Um, he was found to have EBV viremia, so got weekly rituximab to try to control what we thought was the underlying etiology of his HLH. He got rituximab and dexamethasone. His ferritin also peaked at over 50,000, and unfortunately, he sustained many complications and ultimately died. And then early 2015, we had a 63-year-old woman who had a history of AIDS, recently started on heart. She was transferred with altered mental status and septic shock. She was thrombocytopenic. Her ferritin peaked over 50,000. She actually did not meet HLH 2004 criteria. She got just high-dose steroids. She had multiple complications, went emergently to the OR, and ultimately died. So hopefully you can take away from the fact, uh, these four cases, that all are critically ill on presentation. Cases that we are seeing at university are associated with very poor clinical outcomes, unfortunately, just given the severity of how sick these patients are on presentation. Ferritin is over 50,000 in all four patients, and we'll talk about whether or not there is any predictive value to these extremely high ferritin levels. I would argue that there may be underutilization of chemoimmunotherapy in our HLH cases. So, in our four cases, was there any sort of delay of initiation of HLH-specific treatment as we were waiting for biopsy, and is it even important for us to do so? 
I think many practitioners have concern regarding use of atoposide. I would question whether or not this is reasonable concern. Um, and I think this really underscores that you need a high index of clinical suspicion. As you can see, all four of our cases had very variable clinical presentations. And patients do not always fulfill strict HLH diagnostic criteria, but still have this disorder. So over the next hour, we'll talk about the pathophysiology of HLH. We'll describe diagnostic criteria for both primary and secondary HLH. And then we'll discuss available treatment algorithms, including HLH-94 and HLH-2004, just so you have some familiarity uh, with what we're talking about when we come by on rounds. So just in general, HLH is a clinical syndrome with excessive immune activation, manifests of signs and symptoms of extreme inflammation, broadly categorized into two big groups, primary and secondary HLH. It is very much a diagnostic dilemma. It's a rare entity with variable clinical presentations. There's often a unique pattern of very nonspecific clinical findings. And it can encompass a wide spectrum of clinical conditions, which when they converge, lead to extreme pathologic inflammation. So HLH was first described in a Scottish case report from 1952. It was recognized as a familial immune dysregulatory disorder of childhood. So this case report described a rare and invariably fatal condition in two Scottish siblings. The first died um, on day 21 of life. The second died on day 94. So basically, both siblings had progressive anemia, hepatosplenomegaly, and relapsing fever. The second sibling got ACTH, which may have resulted in temporary clinical improvement. On autopsy, histiocytic phagocytosis of blood cells was seen in both individuals. So this is a syndrome of excessive inflammation due to lack of normal downregulation of the immune system by activated macrophages and lymphocytes. Macrophages are our professional antigen-presenting cells. When we talk about hemophagocytosis, that refers to the engulfment of host blood cells by macrophages. So this is a nice example of a hemophagocyte. It's a macrophage that has engulfed red blood cells, platelets, neutrophils, lymphocytes present there. So macrophages are activated in HLH. They secrete cytokines. This leads to tissue damage, which results in end organ dysfunction. NK cells and cytotoxic lymphocytes are also involved. Their role is to eliminate antigen-bearing macrophages. Failure to eliminate activated macrophages in HLH lead to excessive inflammatory activation. Normal elimination depends on what's called the perforin-mediated uh, pathway of cell death. So what you have are release of granzymes from NK cells and cytotoxic lymphocytes, which lead to perforin formation, which then lead to apoptosis. NK cells release pore-forming proteins, these are called perforins, from cytoplasmic granules after forming a target cell conjugate. These perforin then oligomerize, they form cylindrical pores, and these pro-apoptotic granzymes, represented in red, are delivered into the cytoplasm of targeted cells and lead to the cell death process. So HLH results when this normal physiologic mechanism is unable to dampen the immune response and you have end organ damage. So broadly, we think of HLH as primary and secondary. Primary HLH is basically associated with a genetic component, um, usually a genetic abnormality in one of the porphyrin-associated genes. Secondary HLH is more traditionally thought of in older individuals. 
You have significant immune activation due to a variety of antigen challenges. These include malignancy, infection, and some rheumatologic processes. In the acute care setting, especially in the ICU, distinguishing between primary and secondary HLH is really not clinically imperative. It will not make a difference in how we necessarily treat these individuals when they're critically ill. So in primary HLH, genetic defects are um, implicated in components of the perforin-dependent cytotoxic pathway. So now we have identified many of the mutations that are responsible for familial HLH. These mutations result in an inability to trigger apoptosis. They have an autosomal recessive pattern of inheritance, but it still usually requires an infectious trigger to initiate this HLH process or manifest symptoms. It's very important to identify an associated genetic mutation as it impacts the likelihood of recurrence, determines the need for hepatopoietic stem cell transplant, which is usually the only curative option, and anticipates the risk of HLH in other family members. So as our understanding of the genetic defects in primary HLH has evolved, we're now able to uh, separate familial HLH into five types based on what genetic abnormality is identified. So primary HLH, again, has a clear familial pattern of inheritance or an identified genetic cause. It's a disease predominantly of infants or young children diagnosed within the first two years of life. But I would caution using that um, strict diagnosis because there has been a significant increase in case reports of primary HLH in adults. This is a fixed defect of cytotoxic function, so there are no long-term survival without allogeneic stem cell transplant. So in 1991, Henter et al. published um, a Swedish population study which estimated the incidence of primary HLH as about 1.2 cases per 1 million individuals. This study really suggests an underdiagnosis of HLH at that time, although extrapolation to other groups is really limited due to the homogeneity of the study population. A more recent study published in 2010 by Nies et al. was a retrospective review looking at patients diagnosed with and treated for HLH at the three largest Texas pediatric hospitals. They assessed the impact of race and ethnicity also on HLH. They found that 70 patients were treated for HLH during this time period. This is the geographic split among the three hospitals. Median age was 1.8 years. There was an overrepresentation of Hispanic patients, which actually was found to be statistically significant. So Hispanic patients accounted for only 43% of the study population. In this trial, the incidence of primary HLH was 1 in 100,000 individuals, so much higher than previously reported values. They suggested that differences in cytokine production among various ethnic groups may actually explain the increased frequency among specific patient populations. So a higher incidence of mutations associated with primary HLH may be more prevalent in certain minority groups. Again, limitations include a retrospective design of this trial and the fact that referral to tertiary care centers may not be representative of the general population. So what about adult onset primary HLH? So the first described report was a case report of two Italian siblings. They developed HLH at age 22 and 21, respectively. One sibling did have CNS involvement at diagnosis. The other sibling had T-cell lymphoblastic lymphoma. Both were found to have the same mutation in the perforin gene, despite their variable clinical presentation. As of right now, the oldest patient described with primary HLH is a 62-year-old Japanese man who presented with recurrent fevers, hepatosplenomegaly, cytopenias, and on aspirate had hemophagocytes. He was found to have a compound heterozygous mutation in perforin-1. 
So he had evidence of decreased but residual perforant activity, and that may account for his delayed presentation and milder clinical course. He was able to be controlled just on steroids. So looking at this more formally, Zhang et al. published a retrospective review of HLH diagnoses of 175 patients over the age of 18. They found that 14% of patients actually had a hypomorphic mutation in the familial HLH-causing genes. So these altered genes had a residual lower level of activity, which may correlate with the delayed presentation in adulthood. They were usually missense or splice site changes. So this likely correlates with later onset of clinical symptoms and the more indolent course seen in adult patients. Late onset familial HLH is definitely much more common than we previously suspected, and we no longer can use older age as a reliable exclusion of primary HLH. And they, they went a little bit further in this publication from Blood 2014. They did a retrospective review just of genetic testing from about 2,700 adult patients with suspected HLH. They identified 28 patients who have a single heterozygous mutation in two HLH-associated genes. And they actually found that patients who had this digenic inheritance of a mutation in the degranulation allele and the perforin-1 allele had later onset of disease. And so that's represented here graphically. This is the purple bar, and you can see they have the latest onset of disease of all the patients studied in this patient population. So some of this may explain why we still do see individuals who are adults who have a primary HLH diagnosis. So moving on to secondary HLH, this usually refers to individuals who have no family history or no identifiable genetic mutation. Common etiologies or common triggers include infection, malignancy, and sometimes rheumatologic disorders. So the presence or absence of infection doesn't really help distinguish between primary or secondary HLH, as infection is the predominant trigger in both forms of HLH. The most common cause of secondary HLH is malignancy, primarily hepatohematologic um, malignancies. And then we'll touch very briefly on macrophage activation syndrome, which is kind of like the rheumatologic version of HLH. So in 2011, Shabir et al. published the largest single-center case series. This comes from Medical University of South Carolina. This is a retrospective review looking at all of their secondary HLH cases over a five-year period. They had 18 patients diagnosed with HLH. You can see presumed causes, hematologic malignancies is the leading one, idiopathic cases, post-stem cell transplant, and infectious etiologies. So this just looks at all of the 18 patients. You can see that overall mortality is high. 67% of patients uh, died in their review. Uh, most common cause of death was multisystem organ failure. And only one patient who had an underlying hematologic malignancy died. Uh, only one patient lived. The other patients who did live either had an idiopathic etiology, a rheumatologic condition, um, or again, idiopathic. Infectious etiologies are also a very common trigger. So viruses are the most common infectious etiology of these. EBV is the most frequent. We also see CMV and HSV that triggers secondary HLH. We know that patients with HIV have a higher chance of having HLH. HLH has been associated with initiation of heart as part of that immune reconstitution syndrome. It's also been described in individuals who have concurrent histoplasmosis infection, PCP, pneumococcal infection, just to name a few. Malignancy is the most common etiology of secondary HLH, can occur before or during the treatment of that malignancy, may actually be the initial presentation of an undiagnosed malignancy, 
and many patients still have an infectious trigger. So in our patient with refractory Hodgkin lymphoma, he also had very prominent EBV viremia that was likely driving his HLH. So in 2011, another Swedish study did a retrospective single institution review looking at 887 patients who had hematologic malignancies from a single Swedish province. They found eight patients had uh, malignancy-associated HLH. This is just a list of them here. So most common were prim primary or peripheral T-cell lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, which we saw in our patient, Waldenstrom's, ALK-positive large T-cell lymphoma, multiple myeloma, angioimmunoblastic lymphoma, and CLL. In the first four patients, they also had an associated infectious etiology. The incidence of malignancy-associated HLH was 0.36 per 100,000 individuals per year. Again, like many Swedish studies, this is limited by their small population and lack of diversity among the population. In this study, only one patient survived. Five-year overall survival was actually lowest for individuals with T and K-cell lymphoma. And the severity of HLH was actually increased with coexistence of either a local or systemic infection. Just one slide on macrophage activating syndrome. So this is a major and potentially lethal complication of systemic onset juvenile idiopathic arthritis. It can be associated with other rheumatologic conditions. I think hematologists think of this as HLH associated with rheumatologic disorder. It's basically triggered by a flare of the underlying rheumatologic process. It's very difficult to apply the diagnostic criteria that we have for HLH to MAS. Cetopenias are often a later or delayed finding in this presentation, and treatment is different. So instead of giving chemotherapy, you use uh, solumedral pulse therapy with early introduction of cyclosporin. So moving on to how do we diagnose HLH? So the initial diagnostic criteria were proposed by the Histiocyte Society, which has a very chic logo. They proposed clinical criteria, laboratory, and histopathologic criteria. So as of this uh, clinical trial, you had to meet all of these criteria. So fever, splenomegaly, cytopenias affecting at least two out of three cell lineages, elevated triglyceride or low fibrinogen, and hemophagocytes on a biopsy specimen. So these diagnostic criteria were then revised for the HLH 2004. So the goal was to develop standardized clinical trial enrollment by improving clinical criteria. And this updated criteria also incorporates known pathologic mutations. So these are the famous five out of eight criteria. So this is the HLH 2004 diagnostic, diagnostic criteria. So you can either make the diagnosis if you have one of these identifiable mutations. So that really doesn't help us in the ICU setting because it takes four to six weeks to get any of this genetic stuff back. Or you can have five out of eight of the criteria here. So fever, splenomegaly, cytopenias in at least two out of three lineages elevated triglycerides, low fibrinogen, the presence of hemophagocytes on a bone marrow, lower absent NK cell activity, elevated ferritin, or elevated soluble uh, CD25. So I think you can already guess what are some of the limitations of this criteria. So two of these eight criteria are pretty much impossible to know if you are not in a highly specialized center that sees tons of HLH. So it takes us weeks to get soluble CD25 back and it can take some time to assess NK cell activity. So this is really not clinically very useful, especially in the ICU setting. So some limitations, sensitivity and specificity of the HLH 2004 diagnostic criteria have not been prospectively validated. 
This criteria was derived solely from the pediatric population. So HLH 2004 is a pediatric only clinical trial. So how applicable are these criteria to adult patients who are dealing with secondary HLH? It's unknown. It really doesn't capture the clinical features of HLH. So many of these patients will have severe liver failure on diagnosis. They'll have DIC, encephalitis. There's really nothing that um, allows you to incorporate that information when you're assessing whether or not a patient has HLH based on the available criteria. So given these limitations, there was an expert panel that was convened to review 26 criteria, and their goal was to improve diagnosis of adult secondary HLH. And so this led to the development of the H-score. This was published in 2014. They looked at a retrospective cohort of about 300 patients, 162 of whom had secondary HLH. They did a logistic regression to determine the weight of each criterion used in the score. They identified nine variables, so again, clinical, biologic, and cytologic variables. So underlying immunosuppression is a new variable. Presence or absence of high temperature, presence or absence of organomegaly. The biologic criteria were refined to be a little bit more clinically friendly. So triglycerides, ferritin, liver enzymes, fibrinogen, and cetopenias, these are all criteria that are very easily assessed in our ICU patients and don't require special testing that take weeks to get back. And then presence or absence of hemophagocytes on bone marrow. So essentially, they assign a point score based on the presence or absence of any of these criteria. You sum that up, you get your H score, and then you can see what is the probability that this patient has hemophagocytic syndrome. So the higher the score, the higher the probability. So this is the first validated score for diagnosis of secondary HLH. Although it has not been prospectively validated, I think it is a very clinically useful tool and something that even looking at the four cases that we had here really helped guide therapy for several of our patients already. It is very easy to calculate. You don't need to go to the primary reference. There's an H-score online calculator at this website. You just plug in the criteria, calculates it for you, and it lets you know the probabilities. I think this is something that we should be more routinely incorporating in our clinical practice when we see these individuals. And so I think another question that hematology gets often is, should we do a bone marrow biopsy on this patient? Or we've done some sort of biopsy on this patient and we see hemophagocytes on the PATH report. What does this mean? Does this patient have HLH? So hemophagocytes are neither pathognomonic nor required for diagnosis of HLH. They are often not, detect, uh, not detected at initial presentation, and many times we have to do serial exams to capture any sort of hemophagocytes. So does the presence or absence of hemophagocytes portend anything in terms of clinical significance? If you have more hemophagocytes, does that mean you have more aggressive HLH? So several studies have been done to look at this. In 2008, a retrospective chart review of pediatric patients with HLH was performed. They reviewed 21 aspirates of patients with known HLH. They found that just barely half of those patients had aspirates that demonstrated hemophagocytes. So there were a not insignificant number of patients who had bone marrows that did not even show hemophagocytes. The number of hemophagocytes ranged from 1 to 11. The absolute number of detected hemophagocytes was low. So they concluded that the number of hemophagocytes on your biopsy specimen does not reflect any sort of clinical activity. The presence of hemophagocytes is a very nonspecific finding. So it's very important not to make treatment decisions solely on the bone marrow result. This study was uh, done in the adult patient population. So they looked at 58 patients, their bone marrow aspirates in individuals who had a clinical suspicion for HLH. 
they saw that a high number of hemophagocytes was actually seen in patients who had a low probability of disease. So they basically took 58 patients, they divided them into low-risk or high-risk groups for HLH. They saw that number of hemophagocytes had no correlation with whether or not you had a higher or lower-risk uh, probability of that disease. So the number of hemophagocytes present in the marrow does not correlate with clinical disease probability. This is a very, very, very nonspecific finding when found in isolation of other clinical features. So this is just one of those criteria in both of the HLH2004 and the H-score criteria. So not imperative to have to make the diagnosis. Conversely, if you have hemophagocytes but don't meet any of those other criteria, that is not pathognomonic for HLH. So I think the other clinical variable that we get called about a lot is ferritin. What is ferritin? We get called often, we have very high ferritins. Does this correlate with someone having HLH or not? So we know that ferritin reflects our overall iron stores. It positively regulates transcription in response to oxidative stress, and it's also involved in pro-inflammatory signaling. So in a pediatric trial um, in 20, uh, 2008, they looked at the utility of ferritin in diagnosing HLH in the pediatric population. So this, again, was a retrospective chart review examining all patients at that institution who had a ferritin over 500. 330 patients met criteria. They found that all patients with HLH had a ferritin over 500. So it was 100% sensitive, but less specific. But at the very high levels of ferritin, there was 90% sensitivity for HLH, 96% specificity. In this trial, again, median time to diagnosis was seven days, which is a pretty long time. Accurate diagnosis was still challenging. So they concluded that in the pediatric patient population, the extent of hyperferritinemia seen in HLH is really atypical and not usual in other conditions. So it seemed like it did relate to HLH specificity. But what about in the adult patient population? So unfortunately, that does not necessarily hold true. So this was published uh, in Blood last year. This is a retrospective single institution analysis looking at 113 patients with a serum ferritin over 50,000. They found that elevated ferritin was seen in a variety of conditions. Number one was renal failure, 65% of patients. Number two, hepatocellular injury. Three, infection. Number four, hematologic malignancies. So in this trial, marked hyperferritinemia was not specific to HLH in the adult patient population. That said, I think it still has a good negative predictive value. So normal ferritin remains high in both adults and children. So it's very unlikely that you would have HLH if you have a normal ferritin. But we can't say that our patients who have ferritins over 50,000 necessarily automatically have this diagnosis. <coughs> there are many things in the adult patient population that could be associated with a very high ferritin level. And so this comes actually from the critical care literature. So this was just published this year by Granger et al. So basically they assessed prognostic factors for mortality in MICU patients suspected of having secondary HLH. They looked at 106 patients and they defined suspected HLH as presence of hemophagocytes plus either thrombocytopenia, bicytopenias, or pancytopenia. They found that a ferritin over 4,700 was significantly predicted of ICU mortality. So 95% specificity, 46% sensitivity, but a high positive predictive value. I do think there are some issues with this trial. So they did not use HLH 2004 criteria, nor did they calculate H scores for this patient population. So essentially to me, this is just a broadly defined patient population, MICU patients with hemophagocytes. Um, but I think you can take away from this that in your ICU patients who have a very high ferritin, 
they have a high chance that they're going to die. And we certainly saw that anecdotally. The four cases that we had here, all of them had ferritins over 50,000. All of them died. And so outside of laboratory findings, some of our HLH patients can also have CNS involvement. I think this is probably underappreciated. Um, neurologic symptoms are seen in over a third of patients. This includes seizures, meningeal irritation, and decreased levels of consciousness. You can have CSF abnormalities, including a mononuclear pleocytosis or elevated CSF protein. You can also have MRI findings. They, these can vary. You can have discrete lesions, leptomeningeal enhancement, or just global edema. And so what about treatment? How do we manage these patients? So the mainstay of treatment is chemoimmunotherapy. For patients with primary HLH without any sort of treatment, their life expectancy is only about two months. Long-term survival in 1983 was pretty dismal. Only 4% of patients survived. So early studies showed that there was a benefit to etoposide, steroids, and intrathecal methotrexate, which induced remission. Patients who had primary HLH, all of them relapsed and all of them died. So cure was only achieved through allogeneic stem cell transplant. So this led to the first international prospective treatment protocol, which is called HLH-94. This used etoposide, which is a chemotherapy medicine. Um, it's been shown to normalize deficient apoptosis in lymphocytes from HLH patients. It also used dexamethasone, which has very good CNS penetration. Very important to recognize that HLH-94 only enrolled pediatric patients. So while we may extrapolate to the adult patient population, no adults were in this clinical trial. At the time of this study, genetic analysis was unavailable. So basically, children who had known familial disease or persistent non-familial disease were recommended to receive continuation therapy followed by stem cell transplant. So therapy looks like this, eight weeks of initial treatment followed by hopefully remission. People got etoposide twice a week for two weeks followed by weekly etoposide. They also got dexamethasone at high doses every day for two weeks followed by a specific dexamethasone taper. If patients went into remission and they had a familial component to their disease, they went on to get continuation therapy, which was more etoposide and dexamethasone, and then they got daily cyclosporin. In this study, they did give methotrexate intrathecally to help with clearing of any CSF disease, um, but they only used it if people had neurologic symptoms or if they had CSF findings that didn't get better two weeks after systemic treatment. So this is the basic schema from the blood publication. Um, you can see that initial therapy is fairly intense. You get uh, dexamethasone and etoposide. Cyclosporin is added on during the continuation phase. The exclamation marks here represent the day of death for 23 patients who died within the first year of this trial. You can see most of the exclamation marks are still in that early initial therapy phase, and we'll talk a little bit about the implications of that. So allogeneic transplant was done during the continuation phase as soon as an acceptable donor was available. Patients who did not relapse after completion of initial therapy did not go on to uh, have transplant. These were presumed to have secondary HLH. So this trial, although it's only pediatric patients, there were patients who had secondary HLH instead of just primary HLH alone. So the first um, assessment of response was published in 2002. At this time, 113 patients had been enrolled three-year survival, 55%, three-year survival in patients with an affected sibling, 51%, so both much better than what we had historically. 25 of these patients had a positive family history. Of these, 20 went on to get transplant, and 65% were alive at first assessment. No patients with verified familial disease survived without a transplant. 
So HLH-94 basically confirms improvement in survival with combination chemoimmunotherapy and transplant for primary HLH. It also confirms that there's a benefit to this approach for individuals with secondary HLH, and these patients don't need to go on to have stem cell transplant. But again, this is all in pediatric patients. There are no adult patients in this trial. Um, it really doesn't let us know whether or not we need to do intrathecal methotrexate because some people got better in terms of their CNS disease with just systemic therapy alone. Long-term results were published in 2011. At that time, 249 patients had been enrolled. There was a median follow-up of about 6.2 years. Five-year survival was still good, 54%. 124 patients underwent allogeneic stem cell transplant. Their five-year survival was about 66%. No patient with familial disease survived without transplant. So they looked at what are some prognostic factors, which patients did better, which patients didn't do as well. So patients who had neurologic symptoms or spinal fluid involvement had a poor overall prognosis. And the younger you were to start therapy, the worse you seemed to do. Then looking specifically at the patients who died, at this time, 114 patients had died. 64 died within the first year. And of those, more than half died within the first eight weeks. 94% of those patients still had active disease. So this is just a schema representing uh, deaths within the initial and continuation phase of treatments. You can see that the gray bar, majority of patients died with or from active HLH. So this suggests, could there be a possible role for early intensification of treatment to try to improve outcomes in that initial eight-week period? And this is what led to development of the HLH 2004 protocol. So this is an ongoing trial designed to improve initial control of HLH. Again, just a pediatric patient population, individuals uh, younger than 18 years. Initial therapy was similar. You got dexamethasone and toposide, but you had early introduction of cyclosporin. Um, and then intrathecal chemotherapy uh, has basically been randomized to try to better assess whether or not that's needed. So the schema is pretty much the same. You uh, get six, eight weeks of therapy. If you have a history of a genetically verifiable or familial disease, or if you have persistent disease, you go on to get continuation therapy and then transplant. If your symptoms get better, things resolve, you stop therapy. If for some reason you have reactivation of HLH, you go on to get continuation therapy with transplant. So this has been designed specifically for patients with or without a familial component, so both primary and secondary HLH. Again, this is just for pediatric patients, although we still extrapolate to our adult patient population. This trial is still, uh, it has stopped accrual, but we're waiting for results. So as of right now, we're still using the HLH-94 protocol for initial treatment. What are some alternative regimens? So one of our MICU patients, we gave her ATG. We did it based on this clinical, this small uh, trial. So ATG is antithymocyte globulin. It has been used in combination with cyclosporin, steroids, and intrathecal methotrexate. In 2007, uh, they published 38 patients, their single center experience with this. All of these patients had a diagnosis of familial HLH. Overall survival was fairly comparable, 55%, but there were many more earlier relapses. So as of right now, we don't know which is better, ATG versus HLH-94. What about salvage therapy? So unfortunately, there's a paucity of validated studies examining the choice of therapy in refractory HLH. Alimtuzumab is a monoclonal antibody against CD52. It's otherwise known as CAMPATH. Uh, in 2013, 22 pediatric patients who had refractory HLH were enrolled in this study. They had had, 100% had had steroids, a large major a majority had had etoposide, and some had had cyclosporin. They saw that 
Alemtuzumab induced an overall partial response in 64% of patients. No complete responses, but patients were able to move quickly to allogeneic stem cell transplant. So it allowed 77% of patients with refractory HLH to survive to allogeneic stem cell transplant. So I think it's a reasonable option. What about in secondary HLH? Are there any clinical trials, anything looking specifically at treatment for our adult patients with secondary HLH? So there is insufficient clinical data to really determine which patients with secondary HLH need to have the full quote-unquote treatment protocol. So clinically stable patients with an identifiable underlying cause, you may be able to get away with just responding to treatment of the underlying cause alone. So a nice example of this is people who have EBV-triggered HLH. You have um, been able to treat that condition successfully with just weekly rituximab. These patients may only require treatment with steroids. But if there's any sort of clinical deterioration, it is important to start HLH-specific therapy immediately. And so the initiation of treatment is often count, uh, clinically counterintuitive. So we're saying we're going to start potent immunosuppression in the setting of uncontrolled infection or inflammatory processes. And I think it's a decision that many hematologists uh, have trouble making, um, and it's very difficult for other physicians to understand how aggressive we need to be to kind of control this inflammatory uh, process. So is it important for us to be aggressive with chemoimmunotherapy in our patients who are clinically unstable? So in 2015, ARCA et al. did a retrospective analysis of 162 patients with confirmed secondary HLH. Median age in this study population was 48 years. They identified 30-day mortality-associated factors. They found that a third of patients did not receive any specific HLH treatment. 19 patients only got steroids. 39 patients received upfront etoposide and 42 patients got etoposide after a course of steroids. So this really suggests that there was under-treatment of this patient population. What were some factors associated with early mortality? So the older you were, the lower your platelet count, whether or not you had an underlying lymphoma, and whether or not you got etoposide were all factors associated with early mortality. They also found that delay in etoposide administration was a risk factor for early death. Interestingly, in this study population, there were more patients with uh, a hematologic condition called Castleman's. These patients are treated with etoposide, so they actually got an increased amount of etoposide compared to the other study participants, and they actually did the best in the trial population. We see the efficacy of etoposide within 24 to 48 hours, and so they conclude that they think the benefit of etoposide is clear, and it really outweighs the risks that we are usually concerned about, which includes worsening cytopenias or hepatic dysfunction. What about adult-specific salvage therapy? So unfortunately, 30% of adults still have no response to current treatment strategies. So this is a study published in Blood last year in which they enrolled 63 refractory HLH patients. These were all adult patients. They gave them a regimen called DEP, which basically just is the addition of liposomal doxorubicin, which is an anthracycline chemotherapy, to uh, etoposide and steroids. They actually had a fairly good overall response considering how sick their patient population was. So 76% of individuals, complete response in 17 patients, partial response in 31 patients. So this is an effective salvage regimen for individuals with secondary HLH. We have not given it here yet, but it's something for us to consider in our arsenal. And so I just want to finish with uh, one critical care-based study. Um, so how do we sort of distinguish patients with sepsis versus HLH? Who should we be considering HLH in that differential diagnosis? So I think this is a very nice study published in the Journal of Critical Care earlier this year. 
They basically evaluated patients for HLH if they were non-responsive to treatment for severe sepsis and also had a bicytopenia. So they had 14 eligible patients, three died before fulfilling the HLH criteria, one declined to consent. Of the 10 patients, um, all 10 of them met five out of eight, the strict criteria for HLH 2004. Unfortunately, only one out of 10 patients was diagnosed with HLH and received appropriate treatment during their ICU admission. All 10 patients died. So I think it's very important. Uh, this trial, I think, certainly underscores the importance of a high index of suspicion, especially particularly in individuals who have severe sepsis, unresponsive to treatment, and have an associated bicytopenia. Perhaps these are the patients that we should be calculating H scores earlier on so we can better risk stratify them. So not everything is grim in HLH world. There are some ongoing clinical trials recruiting patients with acquired HLH. I draw your attention to this study out of CHOP, which is Children's Hospital of uh, Pennsylvania. Um, so this is a phase two study looking at tocilizumab to reduce high cytokine levels before starting chemoimmunotherapy. So some of you may be familiar with the story behind tocilizumab, but basically it's a monoclonal antibody against IL-6. It came to light um, during some of the CAR T-cell studies done at University of Pennsylvania for acute leukemia. So there was a young girl who had acute leukemia, underwent CAR T cells, and basically had very severe cytokine storm. And they noticed that she had very high levels of IL-6 in her blood. One of the researchers had a child who had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and he said, you know what, my daughter gets this medicine called tocilizumab. It's meant to block or downregulate IL-6. Let's try it. It worked beautifully, and so now we use this as an adjunct uh, in CAR T cell therapy and also blinatumumab to help prevent uh, cytokine release. And so this, I think, is theoretically very interesting, and we'll hopefully see some results in a few years. Obviously, there's a need for a concerted effort to sort of band together and develop a registry of secondary HLH cases. So that is, in effect, there's a German adult HLH registry. You can go to this website. They offer consultations for physicians caring for adult HLH patients. Uh, the website's in both English and German. You can report your patient who has secondary HLH, and they can be added to the website. Um, here at university, we have found that Cincinnati's Children's is very, very useful. They are actually the epicenter of HLH research in the United States. They have a website that they maintain where you can submit a question, and one of the physicians basically gets back to you within 24 hours to kind of answer, talk to you about the HLH case that you are dealing with. So in conclusion, I think we need a high degree of clinical suspicion to recognize the nonspecific signs and symptoms of HLH. I would consider early H-score calculation in individuals with severe sepsis refractory to therapy who also have a bicytopenia. It's pretty easy to do. It might help better risk stratify or identify these patients. Greatest barrier to treatment is delayed diagnosis. I would caution that we really don't need to wait for the presence of hemophagocytes on any sort of biopsy specimen to start therapy. And I would argue for or in favor of more aggressive initiation of chemoimmunotherapy. There's clearly a paucity of clinical evidence to guide management of adult HLH patients. So we really need continued collaboration between hematology and critical care to provide efficacious clinical management for these critically ill patients. Thank you. I'm happy to take any questions. So Jenny, I, thank you. Um, I really only started paying attention to it five-ish years ago, or I mean, really, um, in, until it, you know, that's kind of when it got on my radar. And since then, 
I don't know. It, and it's clearly there's a bias, you know. Uh, but I've uh, uh, seen many cases over the over the years. Um, you know, the first step in in um, dealing with any problem is recognition, and that's I think a big point of having you here today is just to that to put it on everyone's radar um, because it's way underdiagnosed. I'm just mm -hmm. wondering. Um, you know, from your standpoint, you know, we so often deal with these septic shock patients with multi-organ failure, with um, marrow involvement, with, you know, with subsequent cytopenias. I mean, it, when we have those patients, so first of all, num I guess number one is uh, uh, how, I, it just boggles my mind. I wonder how many of such cases were actually HLH induced for years and years that we just automatically attribute to septic shock. Um, and number two, what is your next step? Automatic H score, what I've done has just been, from a practical standpoint, sending a ferritin right off mm -hmm. the bat. And, um, you know, if, and if it's elevated, then calling you guys after the H score. Is that kind of the proper yeah, I think step that's or from a practical certainly standpoint? Certainly beneficial to try to help capture some of those patients who have more nonspecific findings. So checking a ferritin, calculating your H score, if for whatever reason, that H score is elevated, getting hematology on board early on so we can kind of make a fair assessment and we can be involved from the get-go so we don't delay any sort of treatment initiation if it is needed. Um, so I think that's very reasonable to do. Anyone else? Okay, yeah, yeah, Dan Hermans. Um, you talked about in the pediatric literature having the ferritin level of 500 being the cutoff for 100% sensitivity. Is that follow through to the adult? Is it just any positive ferritin is sensitive or is it? So unfortunately in the adult patient population, they did not see the same as what they saw in the pediatric patient population. So elevated ferritins was not necessarily associated with an HLH diagnosis. So the patients who had the highest ferritin elevation in the adult study and this is over 50,000, so these are very, very high ferritins, were actually individuals who had underlying renal disease, not HLH. So that hasn't been confirmed in the adult patient population, unfortunately. So I think there's benefit in a normal ferritin, has a very high negative predictive value, so individuals who have normal ferritin, very unlikely that they're gonna have HLH, um, but we haven't seen that correlation between very high ferritins automatically meaning that that individual has HLH. My other question is about, I guess, initiation of atopicide. So getting a ferritin level, getting you guys on board and getting that early, if you're talking about less than 24 hours from time of diagnosis, considering the fact that diagnosis is delayed already, um, how, from a practical aspect, how do you do this? Because I just don't see being able to get all of that moving and getting an early uh, induction of therapy, I guess, in these patients. What, what do you see as kind of the ideal situation from a, uh, from a bunch of critical care physicians? How would you handle it from our standpoint? I think if there's more routine use of the H score to kind of identify those patients from the get-go. So getting a ferritin is pretty easy. You know, we have a rapid turnaround time on that lab test. Um, and so at that point, you would be able to answer all of those questions except the bone marrow biopsy question. So you'd be able to probably accurately calculate an H score and then getting us involved if that score is high so that we can make assessments. I think the bigger question or concern is that many physicians are still very hesitant to give a toposide when they're faced with a critically ill ICU patient who's pancytopenic on pressors and has liver failure. Um, so in our 
cases here, only one patient got etoposide. And even then, we stopped his etoposide when he clinically deteriorated because we were really worried about you know, causing more harm than good. But in actuality, should we have been more aggressive with the etoposide, we don't know. Um, but I think that's the bigger concern or the bigger flaw um, in our overall practice. All right, thank you. Great, thank you.